an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Today, I sit down with Ari Glass, Alice Baugh, and John Brandon as they share insights from the ASEAN at 50. This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, and as usual, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and we just came off a very fun conference, ASEAN at 50. Um, I'm here with some of the panelists, presenters, and uh, maybe we can go around the room and introduce ourselves and uh, talk about what we learned today. You want to start us off, Ari? Sure. I'm Ari Glass. I'm an assistant professor in the political science department here at NIU and a faculty associate in the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. Welcome. Thank you. I'm John Brandon, a Senior Director for International Relations Programs for the Asia Foundation in Washington, D.C., and I'm uh, an alum of uh, Northern Illinois University uh, in Political Science and Southeast Asian Studies. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for being here, John. Uh, my name is Alice Ma. I'm at the University of Delaware, Department of Political Science, uh, and an Associate Research uh, Fellow at the ASEAN Studies Center at American University. Thanks again. So maybe I can start off with the first question is what are what are some of the takeaways from this conference maybe Ari you can tell us what what the conference was and then uh, we can start off with some of the bigger points that we took home from it so the the core theme of the conference was uh, an exploration if not celebration of ASEAN at its 50th anniversary since its founding in 1967 to 2017 and the conference was set to explore a whole host of issues, social, economic, and security and political issues uh, for the region framed as opportunities and challenges going forward. Um, for me, I guess the big takeaway was that there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges, and our esteemed panel of scholars, of which Alice is here representing, uh, had some optimistic accounts and some slightly more pessimistic accounts for how to realize those opportunities or uh, make it through these challenges. Uh, and I guess we can speak a little bit more about what those are going forward. I think that um, ASEAN at 50, uh, when you look at it in terms of economically, um, it's been uh, it remar it's shown remarkable progress uh, in terms of uh, being able to be a relatively peaceful region, though there's still uh, um, areas in the, in the region of, uh, where there's subnational uh, conflict. Um, but you go from uh, 1967 when ASEAN was founded with a collective uh, gross national product of, uh, or domestic product of uh, less than $100 million to now uh, $2.5 trillion uh, just to see the advances economically, how standards of living have uh, improved, uh, particularly over the last uh, you know, two decades, quarter century, is really quite um, remarkable. Um, I think certainly one of the takeaways from this uh, today's conversation and discussion was, um, number one, uh, uh, how far ASEAN has come, I think. Um, but also, I think um, another theme was that there are new challenges, mm -hmm. um, both intra-regionally, domestically, and more globally, geopolitically. Um, and one question is, how will ASEAN move forward? So for the uh, for the uninitiated, what are what are the big challenges facing? So ASEAN is this Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, it's been around at fifty as the <laughs> for fifty years as the name implies. What are what are the what are the challenges? I, I think there are a good number of them. Uh, just to you know maybe 
uh, take one, uh, is the um, environmental degradation. Uh, there's been economic development, but it has uh, come at an environmental cost. Um, just for an example, if you look at plastics and microplastics in the waters of uh, South Southeast Asia, um, after China, uh, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, and I believe Malaysia are the next uh, largest polluters of plastics and microplastics in the ocean. And if this is uh, not constructively addressed uh, within the next uh, 15 to 20 years, uh, the amount of, um, for every three tons of uh, a fish in, in the world's oceans, there's going to be about one ton of uh, plastics and microplastics. And so what does that say for um, the environmental sustainability of our waters? What does it say for, f um, for food security, where 65% of Southeast Asians' population uh, lives within 50 miles of, uh, of, of oceans and various waterways? I think one of the themes and, and uh, that has kind of animated, I think, um, for those of us who work on ASEAN, I think, is that there are actually a range of different issues and challenges um, that uh, the region's confronting that are transnational in nature, for example. Um, and I think one of the questions is um, uh, the extent to which, um, what, what do states need in order to work better uh, with one another? towards solving problems that cross borders, um, whether it's environmental um, populations um, or otherwise. Have they gotten better at doing that, the Southeast Asian nations, um, than previously? Well, I'll pipe in just to answer that with another problem, <laughs> which is that confronting these issues is changing the organization in fundamental ways, which is mm -hmm. exposing other tensions in the region and its 10 member states or divisions between them at least. So one of the key, I think, debates, tensions, issues that came up in the conference was with the expanded membership, what divisions are there between the six or five founding ASEAN members and the CLMV states, the newer arrivals with different socioeconomic foundations and different competencies in terms of dealing with uh, different issue areas, and the growing institutionalization and formalization of an organization that started very informal with the central purpose to allow domestic stability of these kind of emergent states. Uh, in 1967. So I think this is one of those issues that is beginning to sow schisms in, in uh, amongst the ASEAN membership. And, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a kind of a core principle, right, that's being tested is that they don't um, comment or interfere in domestic matters of, of the other Southeast Asian nations. And I mean, is that, is that principle put to the test by some of these new challenges? I think it is. I, um, I would argue that it's been challenged not just by the new challenges. I mean, I think we, we've seen prior challenges uh, as well. Um, uh, um, but, you know, to answer your original question, you know, have has there been advancements along those lines or changes along those lines? I think on the one hand, I actually do think that there is more a legitimate discourse about it, you know, um, but it remains highly constrained because it remains the case that non-interference is an important norm and that, um, and they respect basically uh, states' abilities to make those decisions. And I think ASEAN has always, <clears throat> at least has been and will continue, at least for the foreseeable future, to, to, to grapple with this sometimes inability to come to a consensus 
and it uh, will be subject to criticism that it is a talk shop. It may be ineffective, uh, and that uh, what more is ASEAN going to do to constructively, constructively address the challenges in the region, while at the same time uh, ASEAN wants to uh, be at the fulcrum of um, larger Asian regional architecture. And how are they going to be uh, able to balance um, 10 countries together uh, in terms of dealing with extra-regional powers such as the, uh, the United States and China in, in particular, but also other countries such as Japan and Australia. which was one of the, I guess, larger talking points across both the panels of our councils general who spoke in the morning and the scholars who spoke in the afternoon today, which I think is exposing both the limits of the organizational design of ASEAN itself, but also the rifts that exist in terms of intra-regional variation in core interests, Cambodia being the most pressing example um, of a state that seems to side more, as Alice's presentation pointed out, with China on the issue than do a number of other ASEAN member states. Yeah, so so, tell why is that, Alice? What's going on in Cambodia? Oh, I think a couple of things are probably going on with that. I mean, I think, you know, for, for one, um, you know, Cambodia's economic and strategic interests are more oriented around China. I think the point was made earlier um, during the conversation that, you know, not just Cambodia, but in terms of expanding the ASEAN's membership, you know, you basically, um, an organization that started out as an organization mostly of maritime states is now a st uh, an organization that also uh, has half members mainland states. And so, uh, um, and so that obviously changes some of the strategic orientations and priorities um, of, of the organization just by membership alone. I think on the Cambodia question too, you know, um, you know, um, there are tensions also between ASEAN states, and so China becomes also kind of a hedge, also in terms of Cambodia's relations with Vietnam, right? So, I think that there's a number of different issues that also come to play. I think in terms of Cambodia's orientation towards China. I, I think another thing is that one of the issues that we that was discussed during the conference today is the issue of leadership, and before 1997, it was always um, sort of looked at is that um, Indonesia was the sort of unofficial leader of uh, ASEAN, even if it wasn't the chair each year. I mean, they rotate and um, all 10 countries uh, share. But um, but the fact that there there's um, no sort of stronger leader within the uh, within the region, Suharto fell very shortly after the uh, the financial crisis. Um, Marcos, um, Fernand Marcos left before them, but even someone like Lee Kuan Yew, you know, who probably was, possessed the, the greatest strategic vision of, um, of many, uh, any ASEAN leader, um, you know, he's no longer, um, no longer around. And since then, you, you have these other uh, uh, leaders, but they, they are more beset with the domestic uh, problems uh, in, their, uh, in, in their countries. Uh, Prime Minister Prayut of Thailand is an, an example of that. We're seeing the, the challenges that um, 
Aung San Suu Kyi is seeing in, in Myanmar. And then also um, someone like uh, President uh, Widodo uh, of Indonesia, who is inclined to look more domestically, or sort of all politics is, uh, is local. And uh, you know, and that's understandable from his his viewpoint. He's a you know, is a former mayor of uh, of Jakarta and and um, elsewhere in uh, Indonesia. And so, how to um, you know, Indonesia would probably like to p- maybe play a political a greater role uh, in um, in the region. But I think, uh, but not just in the region, but globally. But I think the challenge for Indonesia is. Do they have the um, the economic clout that would uh, um, coincide with the, having the you know the political power um, and and to play a, um, a larger role on the world stage? And um, I don't see that at this point in time. Do you think it's it, maybe Duterte is a, of the Philippines is a, is is an outlier in this case, but. Um, we 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 don't have um, we, we're thinking them in terms of rather than one charismatic leader maybe uh, maybe the the, the, your, the bureaucracies and and sort of governments of these states is that 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 feels like uh, a, a a good trend uh, or or is it not or do we need that that uh, uh, maybe a strong leader to have um, to have a vision that is that is uh, that can push it in new directions. I don't think it necessarily has to be. I'm not advocating that you know um, the region be um, um, leaders be strong men in the in the in the in the, uh, in the traditional sense, but to be able to have a strategic uh, vision of where it wants the region to go, and to be able to have uh, these discussions, and and to be able to come up with with something. Uh, where there there is some sort of consensus on at least some core uh, issues, I think that would make ASEAN um, a stronger uh, stronger organization. What do you folks think the role of the the United States going forward is going to be in in ASEAN? I think that's a big question that we had uh, differing opinions on, but not a lot of optimism coming out of the conference <laughs> today, to put it politely. <laughs> um, and I think that's a big question mark that we have to wait until the American president visits the region because its grand policy design seems so opaque, if not non-existent, that uh, there's some big question marks about what that relationship is going to look like. And I think until he's opened his mouth or Twitter feed, it's going to yeah. be a challenge to to uh, to answer that. I think that there are, um, I mean, just to build off those comments, I think there are two general issues. I think there's the one that you've just highlighted, and that's the question about diplomacy, multilateralism, and, you know, uh, diplomacy matters, I think, in, in ASEAN and in Southeast Asia. You know, how you engage leaders, it matters. Um, and so it matters everywhere. I mean, so I don't want to say that it just matters here, but I think it will, um, you know, it will be an important uh, question in terms of how uh, the American president um, interacts with other leaders. Um, will he remember their names, for example? Um, um, you know, we've had previous instances where he did not. Um, so hopefully he will this time. Um, I think, um, I think. Uh, the other question, though, that many deliberate are longer-term trends in terms of the U.S. in, in Southeast Asia. 
um, at our uh, at the conversation today, I think there is um, discussions about all realms. Um, so thinking economics, thinking about strategic, uh, thinking about the diplomatic multilateral realm, and I think there are significant questions about the economics and if economics lead the strategic, um, as some argued. Um, then that becomes a real question in terms of where the U.S. will be at uh, going forward. I think this is an opportunity, um, the upcoming uh, East Asia Summit, mm -hmm. as well as uh, APEC, and uh, I think it can serve as a bellwether for what the relations um, between the United States and the ASEAN nations uh, will be, not only multilaterally but bilaterally as well. Um, maritime security is indeed uh, an important um, important issue. Uh, as is um, environmental issues, non-proliferation, uh, amongst others. Um, I think it would be important um, to, if ASEAN could be proactive in the sense of saying, these are the most important issues to, for us as a region. And this is the role we believe that the United States can play in, in helping us to uh, make the region uh, to continue to be uh, peaceful, uh, secure, and prosperous. And I think to do that in a very clear and concise way. Uh, and uh, I personal rapport is, uh, is important uh, amongst leaders. And I think uh, that's not lost on President Trump. And I hope that the, uh, the leaders of, um, of Southeast Asia will do that. And in turn, Donald Trump will as well, that it could start things in a, in, a, uh, in a positive direction. Right now, we don't know. He has met with some Southeast Asian leaders. He met with Prime Minister Najib uh, last week. Uh, he's also met with the uh, 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 president of, uh, of Vietnam in the White House uh, back in, in May. And so he's not a... He's not a complete stranger to the region, but I think he's a he's a um, he's a stranger to ASEAN in general. But I, I'd like to think of this at least as a as an opportunity at this juncture. Yeah, I, I mean, I would I would agree with that. I mean, I think that you know there's always a bit of a learning curve, mm -hmm. um, and you know maybe it's been a little bit slower out the gate. I think uh, um, this time, but that doesn't mean that there can't that there isn't going to be adaptations as as they as they. Um, grow into the into the into the role. And I don't think um, President Trump was necessarily the first person that might have any skepticism. I know that um, in two thousand there was um, or, or two thousand one um, there was um, President um, George W. Bush was was uh, um, expressing what is what is the value of ASEAN. Do I have to go to all these meetings? I mean, you think of all the demands. The president of the United States. What do they say? A thousand meetings at ASEAN? They, yeah. they, they but I'm not even. I'm not even <laughs> talking about right. that. But I'm, ta I'm right. talking. I'm talking about. Ones, yeah. the, I'm talking about the demands on the president of the United States, both domestic yeah. and foreign. I mean, really, we're the only country when it comes to it is that every corner of the world looks at the United States, despite China's rise and despite its growing influence. It is does not have the same cachet in some other parts of the world, Middle East, for, you know, for example. So how to be able to um, 
take on these, uh, you know, these responsibilities and to be able to, you know, play a constructive uh, role is, is, is really daunting. And then when you talk about the domestic policies, um, uh, issues which are always more uh, important to, uh, to a leader, whether you're a president of the United States or a leader of any ASEAN country or, or anywhere else. And so um, that, uh, that's, he, um, he definitely um, has his um, has his work uh, cut out for him, and hopefully, with his uh, his staff, he'll he'll be able to uh, um, that it will be a productive um, productive meetings in both uh, the Philippines and Vietnam. But on on your point about ASEAN officials or ASEAN diplomats needing to make their case for the added value, the utility of supporting ASEAN, I guess that's where perhaps some pessimism comes in, if evidenced by. What we saw today where this kind of amorphous organization that likes to laud its ability to talk things over endlessly and doesn't seem poised, at least as it was presented today, um, to make large pronouncements about kind of just what those transactional benefits are for the U.S., other than pointing to the stability of the region, its economic growth and potential growth in the future and so on. I think that'll be a harder case to make. I think those... The talk shop Aussie will have a hard time translating that into utility in a transactional Trumpier. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree and, with that. And it was uh, it was very interesting to watch. We had some we had some uh, diplomatic representation from some of the Southeast Asian nations and the the where some 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 of the press has has you know criticized it as a talk shop again. Now they they sort of owned that as a point of pride that you know look we we're, we're about consensus and and a very interesting you can tell that there's been like like they've all heard this talk before about like you know like unlike Europe which has a history of violence that that forced it to do this to keep from like uh, murdering each other we have come together as people who appreciate harmony and and friendship and we we it was it was it was an interesting um sort of self-imagining about um who they are and existentially what they what they mean well, I thought that was a rather interesting comment uh, on on the uh, the first panel this morning because I mean, if you look at why was ASEAN created, it was in response to the Confrontasi uh, policy of Indonesia, uh, the, the um, back in uh, you know 1966, and uh, so it hasn't always been um, a peaceful um, a peaceful place. I'm not comparing it to. World War Two and the, the European yeah. theater or anything like that, but but nonetheless, I mean, this is uh, I, I think that that was a little bit of a skewed perspective. China in the world, and especially in its very near neighbor, Southeast Asia. So what do we think? What came out of the conference and out of the others' work about the influence of China and the future of ASEAN for China? I think there was considerable concern that came out of the conference, I think, from uh, certainly, I think, amongst the academic panel, 
in terms of China's influence going forward. And again, mostly, I think, because there are questions about the degree of U.S. engagement going forward. Um, and China is playing a more proactive, confident role on all fronts, um, initiating new forums, initiating new cooperation, I mean, some of which is actually quite desirable, one should add, right? It's not that it's not, right. um, it's not responding to needs. Um, but in a context where maybe other players are more limited, I think that there were some questions about what the significance of that was long term. And ascending China, I think, is something that um, Southeast Asian countries want and is in their interest. Uh, they feel that they can benefit from um, from economic growth in China. I mean, they provide uh, a lot of material as part of the supply chain of what is manufactured in China that goes uh, out to uh, to the rest of the world. And so um, there can be great benefit to that. I think what... Um, what Southeast Asians, while they are, I think they're comfortable with a, uh, a China that um, is ascending uh, and even uh, assertive. What they are uh, uncomfortable with is an aggressive China. That's something they don't want to see. And what they feel is imperative is to be able for China and the United States to have good relations with each other because if that bilateral relation is sound, then things will go well by and large in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And they want the United States to remain engaged as um, uh, a security guarantor in the region so that there is this balance because what Southeast Asia does not want is one, any one dominant nation um, in, in, in the region, well, whether that's China or the United States or any other nation. And if it doesn't, and if Southeast Asian nations aren't forced to make an either-or choice as they were in the Cold War, you can't, you know, you can't have relations with both sides uh, uh, and not expect a sort of major consequences uh, for, for an amicable relationship between China and the U.S. to persist could mean real benefits for um, Southeast Asia to look after their own interests as they as they um, get uh, trade assistance from from a lot of different partners. And if I could just add one more thing. I, I think it's uh, I think it's unfortunate right now that uh, the United States, while our trade relationship is well over two hundred billion dollars uh, per annum, uh, we invest significantly in uh, ASEAN nations. I, I think that um, not having um, a more um, robust trade relationship uh, is uh, while China is expanded. I mean, if you look, if you go back to 1873, the United States was Southeast Asia's largest trading partner with the exception of four years between 1941 and 45, for obvious reasons, because of World War II. In 2007, China became Southeast Asia's largest trading partner and has grown significantly since that point. Now, I'm not saying that we, the United States, should be in, in uh, um, a competition in the way that, oh, we have to be number one, we have to be the largest trading partner. But I think our market share is is, is not grown as much. I think that we could be uh, a bit more innov innovative in terms of our, our trade relations, whether that is on a multilateral or a bilateral basis. I don't look at it as an either or just because of trading 
um, bilaterally. And right now, this is um, the Trump administration prefers that. And maybe there are some countries that would benefit from a bilateral trade relationship uh, with the United States. But that would be up to ASEAN policymakers of the, of the, the respective countries. I think that, that raises an issue for me, though, which is what we talk about when we talk about ASEAN policymakers, because I see individual states better able to hedge against these changes and make good use of it, and I see larger tensions emerging in ASEAN as an organization. You're saying that the states themselves can do a better job one-on-one than, than, as, than, as, than as ASEAN as a whole? I'm saying that I think, I think the South China Sea presents a problem for the organization in mm. ways different and distinct than what it does to individual countries. If ASEAN can't come to agreement... They don't have to have consensus if, you're, if it's individual states making up their Exactly, and they don't that. have consensus, so you right. have countries moving in different ways, as Alice's nice little graph showed us. If we ignored the fact that these 10 states are in an organization together, then there's no necessary problems other than the larger geopolitical alignments that that sh- shows. But if you can see large geopolitical alignments amongst a group of 10 people who have just pledged to continue to integrate into an economic, social, and political security community, you're sowing the seeds for division therein, which comes back to the discussion we had last night about where the future, what the region looks like in the future. was a pessimistic point, um, questioning ASEAN's ability as an organization itself to respond to some of the challenges or the opportunities that it confronts going forward, being that it has taken on a host of new issue areas since the 80s, 90s, has expanded its membership, and now we're beginning to see some kind of fundamental tensions in where and what ASEAN can do, whether that's upholding non-intervention, whether that's adopting Uh, increasingly global human rights norms, whether that's responding to the South China Sea, but beginning to show the limits of what this much lauded ASEAN way of doing things can actually do for its members. One of the um, pillars that was um, mentioned um, throughout the the conference was the social-cultural pillar and talking about a people-oriented ASEAN. I think that's interesting that um, this comes at a time when um, people want a greater voice in their countries. Uh, People are um, from ASEAN nations are gathering uh, together and meeting in in various ways, such as the the Young Southeast Asia Leaders Initiative. We had about 25 individuals from uh, all 10 ASEAN countries uh, participating in in the conference today. But this comes at a time where we're seeing civil society uh, space constricted in many ASEAN countries. Um, you see it in, uh, in Thailand, you'll see it to an extent in, in Myanmar, though that's just more recent if you compare it to four or five years right. before, uh, where it was uh, significantly constricted. Um, probably most notably right now is um, Cambodia. Uh, and and so, how can you, in the Philippines, how can you promote a, a people-centered ASEAN um, that is not just solely elite-based, and um, while at the same time uh, trying to um, uh, stifle um, stifle opinion. 
Um, just to build on both those points, I mean, I think uh, the challenge of that sociocultural uh, pillar has always been, I think, the most challenged one. I mean, the other two also have challenges, but that is, is certainly one of the more um, contentious, I think, pillars. Um, and um, I, I, as you put it, I mean, I think that there are also important domestic changes going on. You know, in the panel discussions, we talked a lot about Cambodia, Laos, and, and Myanmar. But as as you've also just mentioned now, I mean, there's also um, regime uh, changes in the founding members as well. You know, we can talk about the Philippines, we can talk about Thailand, and and all those things might uh, would also bear in terms of societal. Um, input and buy-in um, in terms of the region going forward. Um, I think to build on Ari's point, um, you know, ASEAN has expanded in multiple realms, and it's a lot to take on. Um, and um, and we're talking. We talked a lot about the individual capacities of states, but we can also talk about the institutional capacities um, of the organization, where because of the priority placed on individual states, uh, the institution itself is actually underfunded, um, understaffed. Um, and those are all also challenges in terms of trying to address and better um, build collaborative efforts among the different states and different actors and constituents of ASEAN. One of the very interesting and maybe clever ways of, of framing ASEAN, I thought, from the uh, I think more than one of the diplomats or sentiment was that uh, um, it was we can criticize ASEAN, but what if, right? What if there, <clears throat> what if there were no ASEAN? Um, which is which is a which is interesting because you can't test it. It's a counterfactual. <laughs> it's a counterfactual argument. But is there any credence to that? Because it was saying you know if there is if there is no ASEAN, there's there's all sorts of things that could have gone wrong. In Southeast Asia, that that have not. Um, what do what do you think about that kind of position as a as a? Um, it, it's arguing that its success is, is, is proofs in the pudding. You know, we have an okay Southeast Asia now. So, absent this thing, I mean, I guess I, I would answer it, it maybe in two ways. I mean, I think the first is the point that you've already raised is difficult to prove, right? And I think you know much of ASEAN's contributions have always been indirect. Right? So we can talk about, you know, things that it helps to facilitate, right? Um, the ability to create some space for national development, for example, you know, um, to have some kind of processes at, pl at play for bilateral relations so that there can be more focus on economic and domestic development. I think there are those questions. Um, I think the, but the other way to answer that, I think, is that, you know, I think whether it in fact did actually may matter less than whether or not people believe that it did, right? So thinking about the, uh, the organization going forward is, is the significance attached to the institution. And I think that's also where the generational question comes in. Um, I think you have older elites, um, as they said at the panel, you don't remember. <laughs> Um, you don't you don't know how it was, yeah. um, and so I think what matters is that people believe. But at the same time, I don't think it should be used as an excuse to not push change as a reflect on inadequacies or right. problems that ASEAN has or limitations or recognize the limitations that ASEAN have uh, in terms of leading living up rather to the charter, for example, and the principles laid out there, or even the principles laid out in the Trinity of. Treaty of Amity and Cooperation. Um, I think the talk shop being a good thing is right, 
but I don't think it needs to end the discussion about what the organization can and should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. And I think also, you know, I mean, I think there's the point made, uh, this might have been made by by John earlier, that, you know, there are always challenges when, um, let's say, external actors, you know, uh, start to criticize the organization and tell it what it should do. But I think it's certainly fair for the organization itself to actually hold up its own agreements um, as, as normative pre- and political pressure for what they've already agreed. So, you know, there are agreements in place, and those can be used to actually move the, the organization forward. They have made certain, certain um, uh, uh, steps in different fronts. Um, so, um, you know, let's, let's be committed to that. What do you think about the assertion that a lot of the, a lot of the successes of the ASEAN you don't, you don't know about because we don't talk about them in the, whether it's, with criticisms, uh, things that are kind of um, there, there's you know there's implicit that that we we know about these situations that the West and the rest of the world are are kind of stressed about, um, and we 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 talk about them. We just talk about them differently. And and in um, is that does that go on in ASEAN? Do you think that's a is that a real phenomenon? Is that uh, overstated? It seems like a more I took that point to be more a procedural one. Don't criticize our procedures because actually we do have more rigorous debate than you assume. But again, yeah. if that's what's going on right now, I have, again, ASEAN's made no official statements, so it's not functional procedures if that's the case. I think that that does happen. And and so, you know, again, I think you can also talk about past instances, again, where it's not part of the formal process per se, but I think individual states or individual um, representatives have taken upon themselves to reach out to certain states. You know, in the past, there have been certain mechanisms that have emerged, or practices, I guess, that have been emer- that have emerged. You know, think about the ASEAN Troika mechanism, for example, which interestingly enough, was not codified in the ASEAN Charter, but it, it became What is something. the Troika mechanism? So, you know, basically it was a, um, a, a representative of three states that kind of took the lead in interfacing with, let's say, a state that was having some challenges or issues that was posing um, um, a, a problem for the larger region or the organization um, or on questions of, 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 of uh, in some cases, political human rights questions. So, you know, these are sensitive issues, of course, but it, they were trying to develop some kind of a mechanism that would facilitate that. And I think that emerges from these kind of informal practices where individuals take the neat lead in trying to interface. Listening to to everyone around the table, I was thinking about, and it didn't come up at all today in the in the conference. Was um, ASEAN's role in uh, the Cambodian peace process? You know, where ASEAN sort of took the lead, but with other uh, extra regional powers, the, the United States, Japan, and China, uh, in um, uh, bringing a peace and getting uh, withdrawal of Vietnamese troops from um, from Cambodia. I mean, that was a real big achievement for ASEAN. Now, granted, at that time, ASEAN was only six nations. But by doing that, that allowed Vietnam to enter ASEAN. 
right, uh, just about four or five years later. Uh, and then you had further expansion with, uh, uh, with Myanmar and Laos and then eventually um, Cambodia in, in 1999. Um, to me, this is something where um, dip- ASEAN diplomats and diplomacy really uh, worked with a, with a lot of coordination with extra-regional powers. And I, I think that uh, that, you know, you don't want such significant problems like that in the, you know, uh, uh, in the future. But how to be able to get um, um, countries to be able to work together to address what are really sensitive uh, issues. Um, you know, that we've been talking about, um, you know, uh, I mean, right now we have the, the Rohingya, which people are talking, saying that this might be ethnic cleansing. Uh, but you have over uh, half that population fleeing to, uh, to Bangladesh. And whether it's ethnic cleansing or not is, is immaterial. These are people that uh, feel that they have to flee for, the, for their lives. And, and how does the um, how does ASEAN, how does the uh, relevant members of the international community work to uh, try to secure the safety of these people and, and to bring peace to uh, uh, both in, within Myanmar's borders and outside? But you've just raised another, I think, uh, important case, but also highlighted, again, one of the tensions we saw today, too, which is ASEAN developing this idea of ASEAN centrality in the region to the exclusion of involvement of other important states from the international community itself. So as the councils general today put it, many of these sorts of issues are things they feel should be left to purely internal discussions through the mechanisms they have formally or informally uh, deemed appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious if there will be an international response or an ASEAN response and whether that will be in tandem and that will be something that ASEAN member states are comfortable with or author themselves that they're central in or it's something that's imposed by larger states with wider interests after the fact, but I'd be curious to see because I think you get different answers from different ASEAN folks about it as well. Well, I'd like to thank our panelists uh, for for the conference today and for our podcast. So uh, listen in and can we, I, I will ask, uh, are we going to see some uh, uh, fruits of this labor? Maybe some, uh, some uh, combined conference uh, uh, volume? I don't know. A lot of good ideas. A lot of good ideas. (laughs) Okay. Stay tuned. Thank you. Crossroads would like to thank Tommy Brown for today's music and the Chi for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。